Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild, and I'm soon to be one of the few people to attempt an 800-pound squat on a total hip replacement. So Ooh. there you go. This is Dr. Mike Nelson. I want to extreme human performance, radio flex diet cert, and just finished five days of dissection here in Colorado. Cool. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, this is uh, Dr. Jose Antonio. I am the CEO and co-founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition um, and also a uh, professor down at Nova Southeastern University in beautiful, sunny Florida. Nice. Yeah, we are. Um, we're covered in, in a blanket of snow. I think all three of yeah. us other than you. <laughs> yeah, uh, Joe. <laughs> well, tomorrow, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing a paddling race uh, and it'll be slightly cold about. 70 degrees with a three-mile oh, yeah. yeah, life is hard. <laughs> oh, burr. Right. <laughs> uh, listeners, we got Dr. Antonio uh, on the show just to kind of catch us up about what's going on with the International Society of Sports Nutrition. But also, he's he's got his fingers on the on the pulse of what's happening in different labs and that sort of thing with tweets. He'll, he'll sort of inform the public. And so we're going to talk about sports nutrition-related research, uh, particularly as it applies to lifters wherever possible, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, we are going to start with the usual mail and news. I only have one of each, um, and we'll get to that now. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This first one is from Richard. Richard says, um, as with many listeners at this point, I've been listening for years. I really appreciate what you guys offer. I train at home, lone warrior, as Dr. Lowry would say, uh, and I find the podcast keeps me focused on my goals and always inspires me to learn more. I am an engineer, uh, but I've been interested in training and nutrition since high school, and I was lucky enough to take a nutrition class taught by Dr. Lowry when I was studying engineering uh, in Akron. Uh, I just wanted to say thanks uh, and also mention Gimme Radio to you guys because I know you are metalheads. Gimme Radio is free. Uh, thanks again, Richard. Well, Mike, you're the connoisseur. Um, yeah. Are, are you familiar with that? Gimme Radio? I am not. I have to check it out now. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to check this out for sure. Yeah, to be completely honest with you, Richard, um, I rely on Rob and Mike for my metal recommendations. <laughs> you know, and Phil, I don't know how much of a connoisseur you are. You're you're kind of old school in a lot of your preferences. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm one of those people they talk about, like, where your, your musical interest like stop at 26 and i'm just there yeah (laughs) (laughs) gotcha so yeah so that was cool thank you i hear a lot of old school pantera coming out yep there's a lot of that right yeah it's comfortable right i know what it's sort of like that training aid you don't want to think too much about it you know when i'm training heavy i just oh yeah yep so yeah uh and honestly i only listen to metal more or less when when I'm in the gym. It's not like I hop in the car for my commute to work and, you know, crank up the, I don't know, soil work or something. Once in a blue moon. Mm-hmm. But Good choice. <laughs> but not <laughs> often. Um, Joey, what kind of music do you listen to? Like when you're exercising and stuff? Or I guess you just don't since you're on the ocean when you're doing your thing. Uh, you know, it's funny. I used to put, I used to have an earpiece on when I'd paddle. And then I realized if I have that, I can't hear the boat. <laughs> yeah, so, you know it's what's funny. People ask me, you know, what are the dangers out there? And I always say the most dangerous animal out there is a human being mm-hmm. on a boat. So I I always make sure when I'm out in the ocean, I wear very bright colors, and I you know my head's on a swivel because you know you never know there can be a drunk boater out there. They don't see you, and then bam, you're done. So, yeah, yeah. Yes, I don't listen to music. And besides, the mu- music I listen to, my kids make fun of me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's old music. Right. Yep. Yeah. 80s stuff. What do you stuff. consider old music? Oh, 70s and 80s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, you'll make a reference in the classroom, and the kids just look at you with a blank look, you know. You're like, forget yeah. it. Forget it. That was before. Oh, it's absolutely true, and it, it, it's actually, you know, rather funny. Um, I mean, even, like, re- referencing a record player is kind of an odd thing. <laughs> right. Like, uh Okay, maybe not a record player. <laughs> yeah, unless they're like uh, neo, like hipsters, and they like the vinyl movement, you know. <laughs> right, uh, right. But I have yet to find a, a a modern version of you know the 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 phrase the the phrase broken record. I don't know what the phrase is these days. Right. Other than you like a broken, mm. record, you know. So right. Anyway, <laughs> corrupted MP3 file. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> oh. oh my god. Okay. Um. All right, one study uh, just sort of came across my desk this week, and I'd appreciate your input from anybody. It's entitled here, Egg Metabolites in Blood Are Related to Lower Risk of Type 2 Diabetes. Uh, I got this from Lab Manager, just as a sort of science catcher here. Uh, High intake of eggs has traditionally been discouraged, mainly due to their high cholesterol content, is the subtitle. This is by the University of Eastern Finland. Uh, and this is spanking new, just days old. Consumption of one egg every day seems to associate with a blood metabolite profile that is related to a lower risk of type 2 diabetes, according to a new study conducted at the University of Eastern Finland by Norman et al., N-O-E-R-M-A-N, um, in the journal Molecular Nutrition and Food Research. Uh, eggs remain one of the most controversial food items, High intake of eggs has traditionally been discouraged. However, eggs are also rich in a source of many bioactive compounds. Let's see. And eating roughly one egg per day, according to the new study, was associated with a lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes among middle-aged men who participated in the Quopio Ischemic Heart Disease Risk Factor Study. Uh, It says blood samples of men who ate more eggs included a lipid molecule profile that positively correlated with the blood profile of men who remained free of type 2 diabetes. In addition, the researchers identified several biochemical compounds in blood that predicted a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes, including the amino acid tyrosine. Uh, And then they go on just to say it's too early to draw any causal conclusions. Of course. Right, sure. So... Um, Joey, what are your thoughts on that? Eggs and the bad rap they've got and that sort of thing? Yeah, you know, I don't... When I read these kinds of observational cross-sectional studies, a lot of times I'm not really sure what to take, uh, you know, what what to make of them. I mean, because you have this study showing that at least there's an association with egg intake and low risk of type 2 diabetes, and then you have other studies showing that, you know, meats, red meats, or maybe processed meats increase risk of cancers and and the, the problem is you're never going to do an RCT, a randomized controlled trial on this. You just can't. I mean, you'd have to do it for years. So, right. so you're left with sort of weird correlative studies. And, and honestly, I, I don't know what to do with a lot of these. And so I always think, okay, so if eggs do this, does that mean people who don't consume eggs? And I know people who don't eat eggs just because they don't like the taste. Uh, well, they have a greater risk of type 2 diabetes. Well, Probably not if they're training. I mean, I don't know about you, but most of the people I'm exposed to exercise. So people who don't exercise are an odd population to me because I don't really run into them. So for me, exercise alone overrides all of these sort of odd correlations because if you're not training, the rest of it almost doesn't matter to a point. I yeah. mean, most people, most people who train tend to eat better than people who don't train because they have, you know, they have certain goals, but... You know, I'm a big fan of eggs because, one, I think it's a great source of protein. And and this might sound weird, um, but if I have even the slightest hangover, which is rather rare because I don't really drink that much, but I seem to crave eggs. And I've always huh. wondered if there's something in eggs that makes my brain feel better. Choline or something. Choline, yeah. Yeah. So so that's my take. Yeah. You know, there's actually a um, a restaurant near Kent State – and they actually serve uh, like hangover cure breakfast. They're omelets, <laughs> and that was that you'd fit in right there, boy, because that's what they do. I love, yeah. Uh, Doctor Nelson, thoughts on eggs? Have you heard anything lately, or is this just an ongoing thing? Is it all just correlative, like Doctor Antonio says? You know, and what's your thought? Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, I agree with Dr. Antonio. I wonder if sometimes it's trying to put good or bad in things that historically that have kind of vacillated back in eggs and red meat. It's like bad. It seems to be newsworthy. So I, right. some of that actually kind of pushing some of the studies. Okay. Phil, I'm, I'm not even going to ask you about eggs because I know you just take them in with everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Is that fair? I get about, it, it is, yeah. We, we get about a dozen a day from our chickens, so I got chickens here. That we get our eggs. I get my eggs like 40 feet away from my chicken coop. Oh, wow. So, so fresh. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Nice. Okay. Well, let's get to uh, our guest this week. We haven't had um, Dr. Antonio on in uh, quite a while. So um, maybe if you could just refresh listeners with um, sort of your origins, you know, how you be- became sort of a founder of a big sports nutrition society or, you know, you got into exercise period and, you know, any of the above. Yeah, you know, uh, the, before I get into how ISSN started, um, you know, my initial interest uh, going back and you, you, Lonnie, you and I, you know, we go way back on this. Uh, you know, I started in the field of muscle physiology. I had an interest in skeletal muscle hypertrophy and specifically hyperplasia. Mm-hmm. So my doctoral dissertation was in that area. But oddly enough, even during my Ph.D. work, my primary interest was really sports nutrition. But the reason I didn't study it was back in the late 80s and early 90s, there really was not a sports nutrition field. It, it really didn't exist. And and there was this weird undercurrent that if you wanted to study s- supplements particularly, you know, scientists would look at you like, you know, you're nuts. Why would you want to study a field that isn't even legitimate? You know, so so ultimately, you know, you know, so sort of fast forwarding after I got my doctorate, um, sports nutrition, at least categories of sports nutrition, were starting to sort of pick up steam. You know, that creatine started, you know, research on creatine started to come out, and um, there was that scan conference. I think um, I think Lonnie, you were at that. Scan yeah, conference. no, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> For those of you who don't know SCAN, it's the subgroup of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, formerly the American Dietetics Association. The name change doesn't change the brand. The brand's not very good, so uh, sorry, dietitians. Um, and at the SCAN conference, the I think it was Doug Kalman who organized the sports nutrition part of it. And it, and basically, it was the same people who, who they, basically non-dietitians, doing sports nutrition research, which should have opened eyes to a lot of dietitians. It's like, you know, who does the research? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it was at that dinner, oddly enough, sponsored by Metrics, where, you know, I think Sue Kleiner yelled out to me saying, you know, we should start our own society or organization. And, you know, part of me thought it was kind of crazy because, you know, that's a lot of work. But then, you know, I started thinking it's, you know, the, the ADA does a poor job with sports nutrition. At the time, the American College of Sports Medicine, they just sucked when it came to sports nutrition. Oddly enough, the people who seemed to grasp it the most were the people who were part of the NSCA, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, mainly because they liked using supplements. So to them, it was like, well, yeah, of course, a lot of this stuff works. I mean, protein's good, creatine's good, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so, so basically in 2003, we decided, you know, we're going to launch our first conference in 2004. It was in Henderson, Nevada. And since then, you know, it's interesting, the field of sports nutrition, the research field of it has grown tremendously. Also, now every major university has a sports nutrition course, whereas pre-2000, you didn't see that. That was rare. Um, So it's sort of the field now, everyone finds it exciting. They all want to get into it, which is kind of interesting because back when we were doctoral students and grad students, you couldn't really get into it because – it didn't exist. No, you couldn't. Uh, it, it was a difficult path of – I oscillated between two different departments on campus doing both in parallel, and I've got the student loans to show it. You know, it just – they didn't combine <laughs> it. <laughs> they didn't combine it. Yeah, and, and you, know what's, here's, you know what's frustrating, and you would know this as a, as, as a PhD, PhD RD, there's still a strong undercurrent against the use of dietary supplements, which I find just bizarrely odd. Um, it's it's almost as like there are people who have you know they've chosen their camps you know there's the anti supplement only consume food camp and then you have the carnivore camp the paleo camp the vegan camp the keto camp and it's it's just a lot of stupidity going around and 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 to me this sort of uh, dogmatic approach to what you consume has always been puzzling I'm like 
just go by the science. If it helps you, do it. If it doesn't help you, don't do it. I mean, who cares what you call it? But people love to get into their little silos and, like, you know, they throw rocks at each other, which is kind of funny. You know, I find it entertaining and stuff. So um, so since the founding of ISSN, I guess you could sort of fast forward a decade and a half. You know, we've done a lot of research. I think you're familiar with some of the high-protein diet stuff we've done. Um, showing that you know you could you could eat gobs of protein. It doesn't cause any harm. It doesn't harm the bones. Doesn't harm the kidneys. Right. If anything, it's one of the best ways to improve body composition. You know. So so there's you know our lab we're 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 actually sort of um, moving away from just doing pure high protein stuff, looking at genetic influence that affects body composition. So. Um, it's been an interesting, you know, last two decades in terms of how sports nutrition, how that category has grown. Yeah, you know, you'd be interested in November, the Institute of Food Technologists, right? And these guys, and Mike and I have seen this firsthand, but these guys are very much like, um, the, you know, big food. Just like there's big pharma, of course. This is big food. And you go to these conferences, there's 20,000 people. And, you know, there's so much just because products are scalable, unlike services. You know, there's so much money involved, but in November, the uh, IFT, they put out a whole edition of their journal, and it's entitled Sports Nutrition Ups Its Game, and it's all about sort of the, you know, mainstreaming of sports nutrition and how the big food companies are now getting on board with the higher protein products and all that kind of stuff, and yeah, and I would argue that, you know, that started with athletes. It's funny, you're right, a lot of people don't remember in the early days how it was almost discredited oh supplements that's you know yeah. th- there's something shady or there's something illegitimate about that um and it's true what you said i think um journals and organizations help define a discipline and we didn't really have a dedicated group right so there was a real uh, vacuum i think that the issn filled at that point yeah and i you know th- i'm really proud of how at least the the issn is tiny compared to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And what's interesting, and you, you probably have, have observed this firsthand, is that the dietitians that come to ISSN are completely unlike the dietitians that go to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Yes. It's, almost like, it's almost like they're not even in the same field. And, and really, I ascribe it to, well, the ones who come to ISSN, they love science. The ones who go to the Academy, they love ideology. And that's the <laughs> difference. I say that is the difference. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I think also you said something that I couldn't agree with more just a minute ago, which is most people, including, I think, uh, most dietitians, I don't think they appreciate that most of the actual sports nutrition research or you could even say nutrition and body comp or, you know, a a lot of the offshoots of sports nutrition, um, a lot of that that research is not done by dietitians uh, by and large. It's done by exercise physiologists. And I don't think yeah. most people realize that. I'm not saying there are no research dietitians. I'm not saying that. But by, by and large, it's not the core of what they do, whereas you talk to a lot of people like we had um, Mike Ormsby on last week, right? We need those kinds of guys doing some very nutritional research if we're going to have evidence to base our practice on, right? And I don't think a lot of people realize that that's where exercise fizz you know, there's a huge niche to, to me. I mean, half of exercise physiology is nutrition metabolism. I mean, it's a huge part of what we do. I mean, crack open any of our textbooks, like Catch a McCardle or you know any of these kinds of standard textbooks, and they're very heavy on nutrient metabolism. You, you know, know, you go back. I mean, you go back to the '60s and '70s and the original glycogen depletion repletion work. Um, John Ivey, Bank Saltine. I mean, these are these are guys who've been doing it forever. These are all exercise physiologists, not a single dietitian in the group. I mean, yeah. and that's not a knock on dietitians per se, but if you don't know the history of a profession, you're not going to understand where it is today. And I think people sort of forget this started. I mean, technically, it sort of started in the '60s and '70s, you know, using the muscle biopsy technique, looking at you know rates of glycogen depletion. So um, it's. It's interesting. The, the field, the, the beauty of sports nutrition is the field changes so rapidly that really it's the doors are open for anyone to come in and do research because there's so many questions that, that need to be asked and answered. Um, and, you know, I'm always trying to convince my undergrad students, hey, go to grad school. I mean, this is a wide open field. You can make it whatever you want. And, um, 
and there's a lot of cool stuff coming down the pike. I mean, like in our lab, we're uh, you know I, we're actually in the midst of doing a, a study on the FTO gene, which is the fat mass and obesity associated gene, and looking at how if you go on a hypocaloric diet, is there a difference in how much fat mass you lose depending on whether or not you carry the risky allele or risky gene versus the normal gene? Um, and, and, and interestingly enough, uh, we have some pilot data. We have about 50 subjects we've already tested. And there's actually no difference whether or not you carry the risky gene or the normal uh, risk for uh, um, uh, obesity, um, which is interesting. And I have, I think I have ideas uh, to explain that. But, um, but yeah, the, this field is just growing so fast. It's, and, and it's a fun field, let's face it. We, you know, the eyes, if, if, if for people in the audience who've never been to ISSN conference, the vibe there is a lot different than ACSM. It's um, well, one, it's fun. So the biggest change, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, two, everyone's pretty much friendly and happy. I don't know about you, but when you go to ACSM, it's almost like people are trying to show you how smart they are, and they're just out there to criticize you. And it's just like, eh, don't waste my time. I don't. Need yeah, that. yeah. No, <laughs> I I agree with that completely. Uh, you know what? One of the things that, as you're speaking, it really comes to mind with me is sometimes, and I don't know if you felt this, but uh, because it's a hybrid field, sports nutrition, sometimes when I'm talking to um, uh, more mainstream, like a nutrition corporation or something, like a food company, I almost find myself explaining why my doctorate is in exercise physiology, right? And if they understood the history, they wouldn't question that nutrition metabolism is, you know, this is the seat. This is the home of a lot of this kind of uh, research that gets done, you know, and I'm almost explaining. No, no, that's... It's not weird that I'm an exercise physiologist and I'm interested in something like coffee or creatine or protein. You know, um, it's, it, it shouldn't be considered weird. So. Exactly. No, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. And um, I think people are starting to accept that a bit more now rather than looking at pure, pure nutritionists. Um, I think um, the one thing that, at least in our field, it, we're, in essence, we're integrative biologists. We're pulling from so many different fields. Because ultimately, the human machine, when it performs, you have to understand so many different things. It's not just pure, you know, pure physiology. You got to know nutrition and metabolism. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah. And and you know, to your point, it's it's human interventions too. Like, especially at small private schools like where I am now, we are where human like quote unquote clinical trials take place. Like, go to most biology departments and talk about human research, and a lot of them start backpedaling. Well, you know, well, you mean animals, right? You mean rats? You mean in vitro? No, people. We do research in actual people. Can you help? And oftentimes, it almost scares them, I think. So, I mean, we're very comfortable doing research on actual human beings. And again, in small privates, the exercise science department can be the source of that kind of stuff, in my opinion, right? If you go to some huge R1 and, you know, they have massive, like a med school on campus and everything else, yeah, you see a lot more of that. Right. But that's one of the things that I at least think that uh, exercise physiologists, uh, it's, it's a real niche that we, you know, a service that we can perform is that we're comfortable from IRB to health history screens to setting up the, you know, the designs actually work with human beings. Because at some point, uh, if all you're doing is like we were talking about earlier, uh, observational cross sectional stuff, how are you ever going to get to any kind of causality? You know, if you unless you do some some uh, intervention trials and stuff. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, you're absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And in fact, I want to sort of bring up that point of human and animal work because this comes up constantly. And um, and you know, the idea that you know, I want your thoughts on this, but the applicability and let's I'll stick to just nutrition stuff. The applicability of nutrition and supplement research on rodents because that's really where a lot of it is. Um, and, and there's one camp that says, well, it's a rat. So what, you know, do we really want to pay attention to what rats eat? You know, sort of the converse of that is if you weight train a rat, you get skeletal muscle hypertrophy, just like people. If you endurance train a rat, well, you get, you know, increase in mitochondrial biogenesis, just like people. But then when you feed a rat, and this is where, and, and I'm someone who's actually done a lot of animal research, so it's not like I have this anti-animal bias. When you feed a rat... I think the problem I have with that is what humans eat and when rats eat are just not the same. Sort of like, you know, you don't eat the way your dog does. You don't eat the way your cat does. You don't eat the way your horse does. 
So is there sort of this, uh, you know, I, I want to say there's this demarcation where sort of the pure physiology stuff I accept with animals because it's much closer to humans. But once you get into feeding, I think you sort of start to die, uh, sort of move away from what the human condition is. And that's why, you know, they have these, you know, well, when they feed a rat a high-fat diet, this happens to them. Well, you know, you feed a human a high-fat diet, oftentimes, at least if they watch their calories, you know, nothing really happens to them. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that, the whole animal versus human, you know, use for nutrition particularly? Yeah. Mike, let me open that to you. I mean, yeah. you know, you've done a lot of stuff from as both an engineer and, you know, in nutrition and that sort of thing. What's your thought about humans versus animals as biological machines and are they interchangeable? And Yeah, I think with some of the early creatine work, even the uh, rat study of safety data, it's easy to get past IRB, more interested in what happens with humans than rats. Um, so that kind of bugs me. And I think it goes back to what is what type of study are you trying to do? Device humans or you can't get, you know, parts of their brain tissue and other things like that, the rat model and take that as far as you can. Like I said earlier, if you can do it safely in humans, I think you don't necessarily need the rat data right away. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, you know, I wish there was a little bit more uh, public science education, maybe, on where a rat or a mouse is yeah. similar to people and where they vastly differ. Different. You know, like yeah. uh, liver size relative to their body mass, you know, or feeding, like Joey was saying, like it's, yeah. you know, yeah, um, diurnal rhythms. Oh, you know, where are they the same? Where are they not? They can be a great model, and I agree. Like with mechanistic stuff, you need real tight control. Uh, like I remember when I was a doc student, I was going over to the animal surgery lab, right, and we were doing things like it's essentially severing, severing the Achilles, you know, putting a little electrical clamp on um, – a leg nerve and stimulating uh, contractility of the uh, mouse's leg muscles and put half of them on creatine, put half of them not. We were trying to take the psychological aspect out, right, of uh, performance. And, you know, can you get more intense, more forceful, or uh, less fatigue index, you know, out of a contracting muscle when it's creatine loaded? So there are things like that in animal models. And then, of course, you sacrifice the animal but the point being is you can do that kind of stuff, and you're not going to do it in people. So if you want to remove some of the psychological performance kinds of stuff uh, beyond just using a placebo group and that kind of stuff, where do we do this? Where are animals helpful? Where are they not? Where are they similar? Where are they not? Because uh, even with dosing of different supplements and drugs, it's not necessarily like a one-for-one -one thing based on body mass. It gets confusing for people, and I think it might be good for them to know when the animal studies are applicable, I guess. Yeah, and you know, I remember, and I, you, I remember reading on Twitter, you know, because there's always animal studies posted by different people, and and one of the arguments the scientists made was that you know rodents, you know, mice and rats, <coughs> excuse me, they share like I forget what the percentage was, like somewhere between eighty and ninety percent of human DNA, and therefore, you know, you could say, well, then they're eighty to ninety percent sort of similar. Um, which seemed rather odd because you have gorillas that share, what, like almost 99%, and, and they eat only, I believe they only eat, like, uh, they're, they're basically vegetarians. Um, whereas you have chimpanzees, which might be even closer to humans, and they eat meat. In fact, they kill other animals and eat them. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. if you watch some of these, uh, uh, how chimpanzees hunt, I mean, they're vicious. They're, they hunt as a pack, and when they catch you, they rip you apart. So, mm -hmm. okay, so gorillas are gigantic. They only eat vegetables or whatever they eat. Uh, chimpanzees aren't gigantic, but they're really strong, and they eat meat, and they also eat vegetables. So, so okay, they're closer to us than rats. So, I, I, I mean, so sort of, you look at the animal kingdom, and it's like, eh, okay, can we really use diet yeah. you know, from animals to apply to people? And you know what? I, I sort of go back and forth in this, but generally I say, eh, not really. It just it just doesn't work. Um, but, you know, hey, could be wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, we need to go to break here, but uh, my dissertation, of course, uh, I was looking at uh, CLA, yeah, right? right? The, of course, that unusual fat in human beings. And I went to an entire conference dedicated to it in, in, um, in Norway. And But the point is, 
they were saying that human beings are quote unquote hypo responders. Like, why aren't human beings losing half of all their body fat in six weeks? You know, and why aren't they just building muscle mass like the mice? And it's like, well, right. because we're not rodents, you know. Uh, and unfortunately, then you'll see sometimes in the marketing and stuff, you know, the animal studies are used as evidence, and people don't realize that people just don't respond to that stuff like animals. If they did, we'd probably have um, a real weapon in the obesity epidemic, you know. But we we don't because people aren't mice, you know, that kind of thing. So that's a great example, actually. Yeah, where the human data really is just eh, it's very mundane and the road data is like wow this is pretty amazing stuff yeah um and yep. time has shown that for humans it's kind of not very useful which right. ultimately is all we really care about unless you have a pet rat so. no i used to say that all the time unless unless our goal is to make mice everywhere lean muscular and cancer free then we actually have to go look at this in people and then eventually we did and there was a meta-analysis by Leah Wigham up there in uh, Wisconsin, and she looked at both the fat mass studies and the muscle mass. And you're talking about plus or minus maybe a kilogram over like a 12 or 16-week period. Like not even enough that you would notice on yourself probably. You know, so the yeah. effects are so mild, like you said, very sort of mundane, like meh. Uh, yeah, so that is an example. Yeah, the two biggest example I use with students for difference between rat physiology and human physiology is exactly that is – uh, CLA, so I did a chapter on that in the, one of the ISSN uh, textbooks, and then also uh, fructose, right, because rats have a very different uh, DNL rate in the liver, and if you compare the fructose data to the rat, even if you try to equate it for dose per mass, compare that to humans, it's quite different, you know, and I think those two are big examples of how using only rat data can get you into trouble. Right on. Yeah. it's a good point. Okay, I'll tell you what, guys, let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to ask Dr. Antonio uh, some questions about what's going on in his lab and around the world uh, in sports nutrition. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you, uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead. All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit uh, royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. <laughs> All right, folks, we're back. 
It's Mike and Phil and Lonnie, and we have uh, Dr. Jose Antonio with us today, uh, co-founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, uh, and uh, obviously a, a researcher himself. Uh, let's start, Joey, with some of the projects that you're working on. You had mentioned um, some genetic drivers of body composition and stuff like that. Um, is that the big focus, or, or what are you up to? Yeah, we have uh, we have two big focuses at least uh, for this uh, next few months. The uh, the one on the fat mass and obesity associated gene or the FTO gene. We're looking at um, um, people who have the risky allele, uh, uh, whether or not they have a advantage or disadvantage in terms of losing fat mass when you go on a hypocaloric diet. And so far, after having done fifty subjects, we're not finding a difference. And hmm. let me just explain briefly what what the gene is. Um, when when people carry the risky gene or the risky allele, what it does is it impacts how your brain perceives, uh, how it perceives appetite and satiety. And people who carry the risky gene don't quite have those satiety signals working as well as those who have the normal gene. So they tend to overeat because they don't realize that they're quite full. Now, we've actually al already looked at cross-sectional data in about 120 athletes and there's actually a very clean relationship between those who carry the risky gene have higher percent body fats or higher fat mass than those who do not. Oh. And this is what's interesting about this is these are lean people. So we're really comparing people who are 15% fat versus 17% fat. And this is on the DEXA. And as you know, the DEXA uh, has higher, you know, tends to have higher percent fat and fat mass. So, right, yeah. so even within lean people, the fat mass is different if you carry the risky gene. Now, when we did this diet study, the rate of fat mass loss is almost identical between the groups, which tells me a couple things. One, you can override any signal in your brain if you want in the in the short term. You could say, you know what, I feel like crap, but I'm going to not eat and I'm going to or eat less and I'm going to lose some fat. So everyone loses fat who cuts back their calories, and we have them cut back about fifteen to twenty percent. Of course. People don't do this, you know, you know, four weeks diet's easy, but try doing four months, not try doing four years. In that case, those satiety signals, you know, if you have the risky gene, you're just probably just going to overeat more so than those who don't have the risky gene. And that's, and that's where I would say you can override genetics in the short term, but in the long term, genetics sort of rules you more than you might want it to. So, so that's, um, that's one of our, and we'll be presenting this data at ISSN. The other one, which is it's kind of a, a, a shift for me, and, and it, it, I'm, I'm sort of moving into this area of brain research and exercise. We're looking at contact sport athletes. That would be fighters, uh, football players, and oddly enough, soccer. And looking at biomarkers of, of head injury, um, looking at uh, biomarkers specifically that can predict CTE or chronic traumatic always hard for me to pronounce this, encephalopathy. Yeah. Um, probably familiar with it in terms of football players. They, you know, their brains are a mush after playing uh, football. So we're trying to see if there are blood markers that can help predict it because I think so far now the only way to see if you have CTE is, is an autopsy. You know, you look at the brain, you're like, wow, the brain's kind of wrecked. Um, so we're, we're, we're doing some of this stuff. We're collaborating with a neuroscience professor, um, Jamie Tarter. She... Um, she uh, does all neuroscience work, and sort of as a as a segue to that, we're actually starting. And you might think I'm crazy, but I'm actually starting a second academic society with her, oh. um, called the Society of Neurosports. And it's basically we're merging exercise science and neuroscience because let's face it, what part of the body do exercise physiologists not understand? Well, the brain. Um, so it's it, there's what's interesting is there's a lot of people who sort of dabble in both. It's sort of like where sports nutrition was, you know, a couple de decades ago. There's nutrition people who dabble with exercise. There's exercise people who dabble with nutrition. And you see this also with some of the brain work. You have these neuroscientists who do, quote, exercise interventions, and you're like, that's not exercise. I mean, because they don't really know what exercise is. That sounds really odd. And then you have exercise physiologists who, you know, they, they try to get these sort of uh, rudimentary measures of brain function. You know, you see some right. of the creatin in brain work, which is kind of cool. Um so those are the really the two big areas we're looking at, and, and we got a lot of small projects going on, but those are the two biggies. Yeah, hybridizing stuff like that, um, 
I can see the, the need for some of that because we, we've all been at conferences where <laughs> – I remember I was at a nutrition conference once in Chicago, and literally – I mean there were hundreds of people in this room, mostly dietitians, uh, but other professionals, and they were talking about – feeding different quality of protein, you know, the leucine content of a meal or, you know, milk proteins, this and that, and how you do different like um, enteral or uh, parenteral feeds. And and they were saying if only there was some way to stimulate protein synthesis with, yeah. without swallowing something. Like, you know, is it a drug? Uh, is there a food we're missing? Uh, you know, how do we maintain or preserve muscle mass, like in cachectic states or whatever, or with sarcopenia? And I mean – I felt compelled to raise my hand. I mean, there were this was a gigantic room of people, and I'm like, resistance exercise? You know, like, uh, how can you not recognize that? But it's because th- that's not their field. They don't realize how efficacious, you know, resistance exercise is. And if you don't hybridize this stuff, like you said, Joe, you kind of get these, um, you know, simplified surrogate markers for one field versus another, and we, we could be measuring something a little bit more sophisticatedly, uh, stuff like that. And so the, the hybrid stuff is, I think that's awesome stuff. Let me ask you about the genetic thing that you're looking at, though, and uh, you're talking about even in lean people, right, even in relatively fit people, it, there's differences, it correlates, right? Um, there's a correlation between uh, people who carry one genetic profile in their body fatness. Um, we were also talking about animal studies a little bit ago before the break. How much do, are you concerned uh, that the psychology is going to interfere with that? Because I know you're talking about time frames and whatnot, right? But this is sort of that nature versus nurture thing. Like I can tell you if, if I'm living on chicken and vegetables for a really long time, it actually becomes kind of easier in a sense. Now, I know you're saying right. if, if, if my blueprint, if I'm hardwired, I'm eventually going to go back to a certain body fatness probably, right? But how do you deal with some of the, the psychology in free-living athletes? You know, it's uh, that's one area where, to me, it's a complete black box. Um, there's, there's, there are people who actually have said that I don't want to know what my genetic predisposition is because then I may use it as an excuse to do what I do, which – I guess that kind of makes sense. They're like, well, if I find out I have the risky gene, does that mean I can just be fat? <laughs> I'm yeah. like, well, no, oh, but I guess I sort of see where you're coming from. And and I remember we did a study way back when looking at the speed gene, um, the actin N3 gene. It's the gene to determine, you know, people who excel in speed sports like sprinting. Um, and, you know, the funny part is almost everyone to a T said, yeah, I can they almost they pretty much predicted what, whether or not they carried the speed gene based on how they performed as a kid. They're like, oh, yeah, as a kid, I was super fast, blah, blah, blah. Or as a kid, yeah, I was one of the slowest kids in school. And the, in a way, you, you know, that one's different because it's just speed. Um, whereas this one, you know, this is related to eating control and whatnot. But the psychology stuff, and, and this is where collaborating with neuroscience people and psychology people is helpful because I frankly don't know. Um, and there, are, in fact, uh, here's a funny story. We were actually collecting data on this study yesterday, and there are subjects who um, do not want to know what their percent fat is or fat mass. They don't even want to know their weight. They said, "When I come back from my post test, all I want to know is the change." But don't they said, "Don't tell me any of my numbers because I'll go nuts." Hmm. <laughs> I'm like, "Really?" They're like, "Yes." <laughs> I'm yeah. like, "Oh." Okay, well, I don't really understand that, but I guess we'll do what you say. So it's just, right. I mean, it's just weird. I don't, some of the psychology stuff is bizarre to me, it's just bizarre. We have touched over the years about, um, at least on the genetic side, I think we really have to start moving ultimately in the direction of what you're saying. Because right now, what we tend to do, like we do a lot of work with coffee or pre-workout stuff and resistance exercise, and we'll do like a gender comparison, you know, or we'll do a... Uh, fit versus sedentary comparison. We do these comparisons, uh, and some of them, I think, 20 years from now are going to seem almost childish. In in fact, like what we're trying to get at is what is the underlying, what's the underpinning difference between how this nutrient affects these two populations, you know? And I would love to have things fine-tuned to the point of what's, what genotype, what blueprint does one group have versus another like if i carry a particular um gene and i'm not going to go into details about cytochromes and stuff but 
if I have a certain fast caffeine metabolizing gene, maybe that I would like to see a study in people like me, not in, in not in the ten or fifteen percent of the population that's a slow metabolizer. You know, I, yeah. I would like to see what's applicable to me based on a certain driver, a certain gene. Uh, as opposed to something that's just, you know, almost so simplistic, like a gender difference, or and I'm not saying gender or age or fitness level doesn't matter. Sure, they do, but you know what I'm saying. Right. It'd be nice to have like a study with three groups in it, and each one of them is known beforehand to carry a certain gene profile. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know what? It's because um, I've had this conversation with a neuroscience person, and I, I've always asked them. Is there a gene, you know, what differentiates some athletes from others? It seems like some athletes have a higher pain threshold. They can withstand more stress or whatever. Um, and there's something apparently called the warrior gene. Um, it, I think the initials are COMT, C-O-M-T. And they call it, there's the warrior gene, and sort of the converse of that is the warrior gene. And it can help predict how people respond to a stressor. And and typically, the way neuro people, psychology people, in, induce a stress is through what's the simplest thing? Stick your hand in like super, super cold water, which I think we all did that in like biology or whatever. Mm-hmm. And those who have the warrior gene respond, they show much lower stress levels than those who don't. Now I'm thinking, okay, how would that translate into exercise? Why is it like, you know, and I think the best examples are races. You know, if you're ever in a race, and, and you guys are not, you guys are mostly lifters, not really racers. I, I, unless, I don't know, have you run a 10K lately, Lonnie? Have you raced? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so, but in a race, and I feel this because, you know, when I do these uh, stand-up paddling races, there's a clear psychology to when someone gets next to you and passes you, it, like, kills you. I mean, like, mentally, like, oh, shit. Um, they're going to beat my ass now. But... But when you think about it, nothing's really happened. It's all in your head. So what is it that's going on in your head that convinces you, oh, my God, now I just got my ass kicked, when in fact, pretend nobody's there and you're just moving, whether it's running, cycling, swimming, or whatever. But yet, our brain somehow convinces us that we're, you know, we're, we're just screwing up and we're going to lose. So, you know, I've always wanted to know, there's probably multiple genes that affect this, but if you look at the COMT gene, maybe, you know, would it be good to know whether you have the warrior gene or the warrior gene? You know, you know, possibly. You know, I, I think we all wish we had the warrior gene. At least I'm hoping. Um, but stuff like that would be cool because it would it would help. Would, I think it would help understand mechanistically uh, some of the human stuff that we we do with exercise and not relying solely on on animal work. Right. Yeah. Hey, Phil. Um, what would be more satisfying to you? Would you want to actually, if you could pre-screen for people with the warrior gene, would you want all those guys on your team, or would you want some people without that gene that you could try to defy the odds and make them as badass as possible, regardless? Yeah, I mean, I think I think <laughs> I think you're right on the second one, um, and that's where I think coming into the uh, not knowing <laughs> if they had that does come into play because I see that a lot with kids, like, oh, I'm just not predisposed to be a good athlete so they freaking give up right away mm-hmm. um before even trying so and then i mean we've seen it I've, I've seen it with tons of kids that are you know they come in at a young age and they're just genetically pretty happening but then they give up when it gets hard but then i get these other kids that from day one they've had to work twice as hard as everybody else and they end up being they're the, what, the kids that go to division one schools right, <laughs> you right. Know? yeah so yep eh, you know no, I get so, it. I mean, I think it's it's a mix of both would definitely be good. Yeah, but. it's going to be a mixed blessing, right? Once we start yeah. to understand, you know, what genes and obviously not everything is single gene driven, right? No, so, and you know, there's a whole group of people out there that if they knew they didn't have that warrior gene, they're going to be like, "Screw you, dude! I'm going to prove you wrong." Yeah, you know, yeah. and they're just going to be mentally strong. Yeah, you know, what was that movie? Gattaca? <laughs> Wasn't Gattaca like that? Yeah. There was a guy yeah. who sort of defied, like he he didn't have, you know, this. Um, he didn't meet the certain eugenics profile, and he still, yeah. you know, tried to pass as one. Um, so. Uh, so as we start to wind this down, uh, Joey, let me ask you about, like, you you do a great job of tweeting out on a regular basis different, like, research facts and findings, and especially as, you know, might apply to body comp or performance and that kind of stuff. Um, other than your lab, 
What's some of the cool stuff? I know I'm asking a lot here, but what's some of the cool stuff? Do any of your recent tweets come to mind uh, when you try to educate the public on sports nutrition that you know our listeners might enjoy? Actually, well, um, not purely sports nutrition. This is more body comp stuff, but um, there was a study, I think it just came out this week, um, where it, they, they were uh, training rug, elite rugby players over like a 14-week period, they gained about 4.4 4 pounds of lean body mass, and they had zero change in resting metabolic rate, which which yeah. actually agrees with a lot of past data showing that, you know, changes in lean mass have very little effect on your RMR. Hmm. Um, and it, what's interesting is I posted the same study on Facebook, and people were actually kind of mad. It, they <laughs> they refused to believe the data, despite the, despite the fact that actually it agrees with other data. I mean, changes in lean mass have like like it's like a drop in a bucket it's like pissing in the ocean it doesn't really affect your resting metabolic rate um, and also people tend to inflate rmr with um, exercise activity uh exercise energy expenditure as well as non-exercise activity thermogenesis they're like well a bigger body burns more calories than a smaller body moving correct that's not rmr that's movement um mm-hmm. and it's interesting how enormous amount of cognitive dissonance where people just refuse to believe something despite the fact that the data shows it and that's that's probably one of the biggest ones um um and the other one is you know just the high protein stuff I, you know i've done a lot of that high protein stuff uh Stu phillips has done it and there's still a large cadre of people who refuse to believe that it's okay to eat a high protein diet which i just find really odd i i I don't even know what the psychology is behind that because all you got to do is look at the data. And let me tell you a quick story because this was like a year or two ago. I, I you know, submitting an IRB. This is always fun because people who read your your IRB proposal aren't necessarily experts in the field. So I had uh, the comments come back from my IRB IRB submission, and and basically the comment was, you know, people eating this much protein, they're really going to put their kidney function at risk. And I was like, wow, am I actually reading this? Oh yes, my I am god, yeah. yeah. And so I responded. I said, well, no, that's just not true. And I, I even listed a bunch of references. <laughs> Good. And yeah, he still refused to believe. He's like, well, no, if you get people with chronic kidney disease, it you know, might hurt them. I'm like, these are athletes. I mean, I, it was like, wow, I, I, can't, I can't believe this. It, it's sort of like saying, hey, we'll run and kill you. Well, it'll kill you if you just had a recent heart attack. <laughs> but if you're... If you're a Division One cross country runner, running is actually good for you. Right. You know, it's 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 funny how they they sort of mix and match different populations that have. No, it's almost like I tell people: people who train are completely unlike people who don't. It's almost like a different species, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And let's most people, at, at least at my university, don't train. It's so it's sort of like wow, I'm. I, I I am exposed as well as you guys to this really small population of people who train. Whereas almost everyone else is exposed to sedentary people, and that to to them that's their normal, and it's like wow. So he really does think eating all this protein is bad for This is just bizarre. Right. This is someone with a doctorate, a doctorate, right? <laughs> I was like what? Yep. <laughs> yeah, just oh. just um his quote unquote common sense biases, right? That he, yeah. he's he has as a PhD, he should consider the source. Like he's formed this very strong opinion. On essentially hearsay or nothing, you know, um, yeah, how, how bizarre. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, you had tweeted something specifically that I wanted to bring up that I saw just uh, recently about uh, you were sort of railing a little bit against, um, you know, systematic trials or meta analyses, how they are not the end all be all. Like if you work with a lot of people who are purely clinicians, right, that they, they stand on these things and they've never collected a single data point in their lives, you know? And so can you comment a little bit about a meta-analysis or systematic reviews and how we base our medical treatment on that stuff versus actual randomized clinical trials? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. If you look at reviews, systematic reviews, as well as meta-analyses, and, and as, a, as a matter of admission, I'm an, I'm an author, co-author on reviews and a meta-analysis. So, it's not like I have a personal vendetta against them. But what's interesting is if you go back to the 70s and 80s, certainly meta-analyses, I'm like, wow, were there any? Uh, you still had review papers you know, back in the 80s, but not that you see now. So now there's this crazy proliferation of meta-analyses and review papers. 
And the weird part is oftentimes it's written by people who have never done a study. It's like yes. they've never done RCT. They've never done a randomized controlled trial. Yet they're writing these meta-analyses, which, you know, I guess the saying is he who doesn't collect data writes meta-analyses. I mean, something like that. Right, right. right. So they view this as like the epitome of, of, of uh, I guess, scientific knowledge when, in fact, meta-analyses and review papers would not exist unless you had RCTs. You need RCTs. Ultimately, that is the best arbiter of, you know, scientific truth or scientific fact. And the reliance, I would say, the, if you can rely on meta-analyses, you're relying also on, you know, maybe the hidden biases of the authors who, you know, they, they have to put parameters around the meta-analyses. And you can massage that any way you want. Yeah. And that's why it's always better to look at individual RCTs. And, and, and I remember, I forget the exact stat, but... When you when you compare large scale RCTs with meta analyses, oftentimes they don't even agree. So it's like, okay, you've done the meta analyses, but yet this large scale RCT doesn't even agree with your meta analysis. So um, it's it's kind of frustrating because too many people rely on meta analyses and review papers, and and this is I don't know, maybe I'm just kind of weird with this, but I when they say they refer to them as studies, I tell them, well, no, actually those aren't studies. They're not studies. Yeah. Those are just those are just reviews. Anyone sitting sitting in their underwear can write these. Yeah. Studies are RCTs, and I guess you know if you want to go further, they're cohort studies or observational studies. But review papers and meta analyses are not studies. Right. But people, you know, people like using it that way, and, and and it's really frustrating because people are constantly on social media. They always put that stupid ass pyramid, which it has meta analyses at the top, and I'm like, no, right. no. No, it's not true. Yes. No, dude, I, I totally uh, – we have an annual like um, undergraduate research conference, and we have different clinical programs on campus. These are graduate students, uh, and some, in my opinion, are better than others. But some of them, they present posters uh, that, that's just really a, a review. Like, you know, it's sort of a – it's not even at the level of meta-analysis involving more mathematics or statistics. It's just sort of a, a review, and they're presenting it. Like it's their, you know, I did research. I'm like, no, you didn't actually do research uh, in the data collection sense. So you don't understand a lot of the nuances, right? Like back in the day, no one would presume to write a review paper unless they actually were down and dirty in the lab and they saw the limitations of the equipment or the variability in the human response. You know what I'm saying? Like you had some actual expertise Pete Lemon, before he started writing, because uh, by the time that I worked with Pete, of course, and obviously, Joey, you know Pete, um, he was writing review after review after review because of his deep experience collecting data, you know, um, earlier, you know, earlier. He wouldn't have presumed to do all these studies about protein and resistance athletes had he not done that. And I see a lot of these, like I said, uh, graduate students and clinicians they like they just kind of get behind the you know like you said they're almost like a desk jockey and they just kind of do their thing, um, but they don't understand the nuances and the, the the hard reality the limitations behind some of this so they could come up with spurious conclusions because they've never seen it firsthand, right? Yeah. So it, you know that's so true. It's um and 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 oftentimes the critiques or the way they criticize some of these studies, particularly people who haven't actually done a study. It's it's true that they don't understand the nuances involved. And to me, one of the most frustrating and slash funnier things you, you when I see on social media is is this question: Why didn't you do you know and just fill in the blank? Yeah, <laughs> what? yeah. As if we didn't think of that. Right, you know? right. Yeah, you can't cover everything. You say I, I appreciate that. Really, I do. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't you study fifty more subjects? Right. Well, I could have. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. As we as we wrap this up, um, let's let's just uh, get some information about the uh, ISSN conference in June, uh, yes. and anything you want to share about that. Yes, it's uh, the conference is actually in Las Vegas, Nevada, June thirteenth to fifteenth. And for the listening audience, that that's actually the last time we're going to hold a conference outside of Florida. And I'm thinking. We're, I'm going to have the national conference for ISSN shifted to Florida permanently, mainly because I live in Florida and I love Florida. Mm -hmm. So it'll be in Las Vegas this year. It'll be in Daytona Beach in 2020. So if you don't get to Las Vegas, come to Daytona Beach. Um, 
And we still actually have openings for speakers. So if you know anyone who wants to apply to speak, um, we have some openings. And uh, um, one of the – we're actually going to have some people – and I know that I'm going to get hate mail for this – people who work for Bear slash Monsanto speaking at ISN. Yes, there's a guy who's actually going to speak on food science, which is really kind of cool because I don't know much about food science per se. Yep. Uh, but talk about organic farming and, and – and selective breeding of crops to make like corn sweeter and whatnot. It's fascinating stuff. But I know there are people who are like, oh my God, Monsanto and Bear, it's another corporation that is evil. And I'm like, oh God, you yeah. know, just listen, you know, for Christ's sake. Um, so it'll be a, it'll be a fun conference. Um, and, and for anyone, anyone who has students who want to present, you know, we're taking uh, applications for poster presentations, um, any new cool stuff. It doesn't have to be pure sports nutrition. We're actually accepting anything related to exercise training as well. You know, we want to get sort of this wide variety of uh, posters there. So so June 13th to 15th, the ISSN conference, make sure you're there in Las Vegas. That's good to know um, as far as the pure exercise stuff because we have a – I have a couple of students in my group that are looking at different like uh, fitness activity trackers. And, and, Mike, you know about a lot of this stuff. But yeah. um, some of it's just – how well they relate to each other and calorie expenditure, but there's nothing direct. There's no nutrition per se, so it's it's good to know that uh, they can join the students that are interested in sharing the more nutritional stuff. So. Yeah, because stuff like that actually has a lot of practical value because we use a lot of those things. People in nutrition use that stuff all the time. So mm-hmm. yeah, stuff like that is great. If we can get more, you know, more uh, original data on that, uh, you know, that would be awesome for the conference. Perfect. Uh, yeah, and listeners, just to wrap up here, um, ISSN is really fun. Uh, Joey mentioned this earlier, Dr. Antonio was stating this, but it's not the traditional super dry, you know, it's it's like you're having all this fun while you're learning stuff. So, like, it's like this guilt-free fun. It's neither boring nor just wanton, you know, beer on the beach kind of thing. It's a little of both. And so that's a – it's a unique – like positive atmosphere where you have exercise fizz and and um, what I would consider the newer and the fewer uh, uh, dietitians sort of involved uh, and working together in sort of a hybrid way. It's it, it, and, and other disciplines too, and it's just really fun. I mean, that's one of the things I think sets it apart is the caliber yeah. of the science plus fun. You know, so and the thing is, you know, especially for young investigators, whether you're a new PhD or just a grad student or undergrad. People are actually very friendly and they sincerely want to help you. So don't feel intimidated by, you know, if a PhD comes up to your poster because honestly, they're just looking for information and, and, you know, getting help, you know, is easy because people, people want to help you. So, so yeah, I mean, June 13th to 15th, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. All right. And even, even lay people. Right. This is not just for people who are a graduate student or researcher. So even lay people, I think, can really walk away from this knowing what's coming down the pike in sports nutrition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, Uh, that'll be it. So we will catch up with everyone next week. Uh, Thanks, Dr. Antonio, for being on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention, Uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org 
And um, let us know what you think on the forums, and certainly you can request products, and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.